Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, we've got plenty to talk about this week. Still unannounced gubernatorial candidate, incumbent Brad Little, tours the state to tout victories on the legislative front. Lots of drama and lots of procedural maneuvering on the House floor regarding the grocery tax repeal. And all of this taking place at the State House and around the state against the backdrop of the Omicron surge, which does appear to be receding, but we're still seeing very high case numbers across the state. To break it all down, I'm joined this week by a friend of the podcast, Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. Well, Melissa, thanks for joining me on the podcast again here. Uh, so full disclosure, set the ground rules here. We are podcasting via Zoom. That's not really a pandemic protocol. It's just that it's late afternoon. We just wanted to do this thing remotely and save people a, a drive. But, you know, we won't be spreading uh, coronavirus via this uh, podcast. I can guarantee you that. Well, hopefully not, unless there's something I don't understand about it. It would be a breakthrough case for the medical journals if we managed to uh, pull that off. But uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to to, to Omicron and the legislative session as we go here. But uh, let's start with, you know, and I don't want to put you on the spot here too much, but do you think Brad Little is going to run for re-election? I don't know. He hasn't announced yet. Um, That's the thing. He hasn't announced. So maybe there's a chance he won't, you know? Yeah, no. Yeah. He said last year, don't be surprised. But at this point, who knows? No, it's it's this. These last two weeks, more than anything, have really shown us how savvy he is being with you with leveraging the situation in Idaho right now with this mind-blowing surplus that we have, $1.9 billion projected by the end of this fiscal year, really leveraging that for his agenda. And then when he manages to get the legislature on his side, uh, using that to celebrate his accomplishments and, and what he has done, you know, regardless of how much of that was the legislature passing it, it was in his agenda. And he is the one who's touring the state. He's the one who is doing teacher appreciation rallies and ceremonial signings of bills that he's already signed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is 100% campaigning without campaigning, right? This is incredibly convenient for him. And, you know, and I wrote about it on Thursday and, we could see this coming. We, we could see the foreshadowing of this because it comes on the heels of that state of the state address was a very political state of the state address. I mean, the governor's audience was not 105 legislators. Well, it was, but not exclusively. I mean, he was talking to folks who will be voting in the May primary with all of those comments about Bidenflation and the border and vaccine mandates. Yeah, We could see that this was going to be a political session, but I don't know if I could foresee what's happened these past couple of weeks. Big bills passing, the income tax bill passing, the teacher insurance bill, one of the teacher insurance bills passing, and the governor going on the road to tout these these really big policy initiatives, but also really big feathers in his cap as he seeks re-election, because he probably is seeking re-election. Maybe we, we don't don't get out ahead of yourself, Kevin. Slow down there. But purportedly seeking like, re-election, possibly seeking re-election. <laughs> you know, and I when when Governor Otter was running for re-election and he was touring the state for his Capitol Day events, he was criticized 
multiple times for campaigning while being governor, campaigning on the taxpayer dime, you know, on the surface, you ask his communications people, they say, you know what? No, he is doing his gubernatorial duties. He is traveling to every part of the state. He just happened to be bringing people on his team and his lieutenant governor, Brad Little, who he heartily endorsed for, you know, to succeed him um, and introducing him to all of these county commissioners and people who were involved in local GOP politics. It just so happened to be in the lead up to his re-election campaign in 2014, right? Very, very convenient. So this, Governor Little has continued those capital day for, capital for a day Mm -hmm. events, you know, post COVID stay at home orders. Um, This is taking that to a next level. This is taking legislators, a a handful of legislators who Mm -hmm. I think are key for winning over some of these local GOP groups who may be tempted to look at a Janice McKeon. And, and somebody um, like a Jim Woodward, who himself is going to face a very difficult primary up in the panhandle. Right, exactly. I mean, it, Governor Little has made it clear that that this is his team and that he has the confidence of a lot of these lawmakers who are in with leadership and who are getting things done. Uh, Wendy Horman is another great example. Mm-hmm. You know, she is on Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. She carries the K-12 budget. She is so heavily involved in both education budgeting and policymaking. Um, she's key. And for him to be pictured with her at these teacher appreciation rallies, I think, is an incredibly savvy move for him because he's really showing he has the trust of a lot of these lawmakers who local Republicans, a lot of them really, really respect. This is after, of course, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan was facing a lot of criticism from school boards across the state, teachers across the state for last year's indoctrination task force mm-hmm. and the public records right. request that members of her tax task force did, um, you know, trying to root out indoctrination and they never really proved that it was happening on any level anywhere in in the K through 12 system. And I think what's interesting here too. I mean there's the the politicking on uh, on company time here if you will. But I think there's also what's interesting too about what little is doing on the education front especially with the, the teacher insurance bill, the school employee insurance bill is I think he's doing a calculus here where he's He's seeing the Republican electorate in May maybe a little bit differently than the conventional pundit wisdom. You know, run hard to the right. You know, run to the to the hardline conservatives. He is appealing to bus drivers, cafeteria workers, you know, classified t- school employees, not just teachers, not just IEA members, but, you know, school employees and their families who, you know, who are not necessarily going to hew to a a party line. And I would imagine if he does more of this down the road, whether it's all day kindergarten, uh, the empowering parents grants uh, or, or teacher salaries, it's the same thing. He's reaching maybe to a different electorate in this primary than we assume is going to be the electorate in this primary. Right. And I think that the, the Donald Trump endorsement of Lieutenant Governor McGeehan is going to absolutely help her out with a certain portion of 
that primary Republican voter pool. At the same time, there are a lot of people, you know, Brad Little isn't a Donald Trump Republican. He's a Mike Pence Republican. Mm -hmm. And that is going to go far with a lot of these, especially rural Idaho voters who are involved in county politics. They know what it takes to run an irrigation district or a rural highway district or put together a city budget. Um, That's he, he was incredibly popular with those primary voters in 2018 when you look at the breakdown. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really going to help him this year, too. And so, yes, that Donald Trump endorsement is absolutely going to help Lieutenant Governor McGeehan. But Brad Little, even when he was in with the Trump administration, he was connecting with the folks in there who were like Mike Pence. He's a, he's a Mike Pence Republican. Right. I think that's and a really think, astute way to put it. And, and, and I don't think that's any surprise to the Idaho Republican voters at all. They and, look at him and they, see, and they see somebody who's very involved in those kind of decisions. And I think what's interesting here, too, I mean, first of all, you've got the optics here of the governor is touring the state. The lieutenant governor is presiding over the Senate. She's kind of stuck in the state house, uh, you know, not getting out there nearly to the extent that uh, Governor Little is. But also, I think the tactics are interesting here. Um, at the same time as you're seeing the governor maybe reaching out to you know, a broader tent of Republican voters, you're really seeing McGeehan, to the extent that she can campaign when she's uh, you know, presiding over the Senate, she's kind of doubling down on energizing the base and mm-hmm. playing to the base. I think the Michelle Malkin endorsement this week, I think it has the same effect as the Donald Trump endorsement with that base. I mean, you know, Michelle Malkin isn't as big a name as Donald Trump, but in conservative circles, she is a big name. And it feels like she's kind of doubling down on, these are my people, I need to get them energized, and I need to make sure that they're excited to vote in May, because I think she sees that as her path to to winning a nomination. Absolutely, and I I think it's interesting that so many of the uh, high-profile endorsements that are coming in for Lieutenant Governor McGeehan are from very high profile out of state conservatives, mm-hmm. right? Michelle Malkin and Donald Trump. Um, you, you're seeing a lot of Idaho Republicans and big names in the Idaho Republican Party rally around Brad Little. How much of that is going to make a difference on, say, the Lincoln Day Circuit when you have highly motivated and involved? on the ground local Republican officials, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we know that county by county and district by district, those Republican um, central committees and groups differ wildly, right? That that Twin Falls Central Committee is going to be very, very different than what you're going to see in Sampling. Oh, sure. Um, but, but that's no surprise, you know, so it's, I, I, I think that Governor Little not announcing isn't hurting him one bit, you know, circling back. It's not slowing him down. (laughs) Yeah, he's not on the defensive right now about a lot. You know, the state hasn't been shut down for a very long time. You know, people like to talk about how we need to end the emergency. We need to open Idaho back up. Idaho's been open, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and that messaging isn't going to resonate with people who weren't already opposed to Governor Little and his policies from the beginning, I think. 
But that said, there are certainly a lot of Republicans who are still very unhappy with how the beginning of the pandemic was handled, mm-hmm. the business shutdowns, um, and how that affected Idaho industry. And so, um, you know, at, at this point, I'm very interested to see how this is going to play out. At what point do you announce? You know, do you just quietly walk down the hall to the Secretary of State's office and hand in your paperwork and not even do a press release? I mean, like, what? what's the end game here? We're, we're in mid-February. We're a, a month away from the filing deadline. Right. Which I could get think, pushed back because there's a proposal to, to delay the, the filing period absolutely. and compress it to a week. So it may be March before he actually files paperwork. And I wonder if we yeah, hear like, anything official between now and March. Maybe, maybe he flipped his mind. Maybe he forgot. <laughs> no, it's like he's got this string around his finger and he's forgotten what the string is there for. No, I, I don't find that exactly. too, too likely. The real so, risk. So the... The political jockeying that's going on this session is really interesting, too. But I think also the policy jockeying is interesting as well, because the more big proposals Governor Little gets done, $600 million income tax cut, an insurance plan that is going to cost a couple hundred million dollars between the one-time costs and the ongoing costs, all day kinder if that gets through at $47 million. The grants program, the parent the Empowering Parents Grants Program is $50 million of federal money. The more of these projects come through, the less time, the less money, the less window there is for legislators to get other things done. And that kind of brings us to the whole process we saw this week on the grocery tax. It, it's absolutely no mistake, you know, from both a campaigning standpoint and also from that pile of money standpoint, that that is $600 million income tax bill was the first major piece of legislation that was passed and signed. I, you know, $1.9 billion is a lot of money, but there are some big price tags attached to what was in the governor's proposal. Mm-hmm. And the sooner he can get those through, whether it's education related, infrastructure related, you know, pairing that with the, the federal money, um, the income tax proposal that has already gone through. You suddenly, you say, well, you know, we don't want to run through all of this. We have to put some in the rainy day fund, too. That's that's no mistake. No. And the, the governor has said for years now, if you get me a grocery tax... Yeah, I'll if, sign if, a grocery tax repeal if you get me one. If you, if you get me a good grocery tax repeal, I will sign it. But we are hearing him hedge a little bit more. You know, last week, a week and a half ago on the AARP call, he started repeating a lot of the talking points that we have been hearing from both Speaker Scott Betke and, you know, Senator President, President Pro Tem Chuck Winder on why repealing the grocery tax is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. about how complex it is for the grocers and the retailers and how, you know, it. he said it creates jobs for lobbyists who want to add more exemptions to this sales tax. And so, you know, at it's interesting because it's a very different message than what we heard four years ago when he was initially campaigning for mm-hmm. this. You know, it, it's still, I'll sign it if you get it to me, but there's some hedging in there. Well, and there's there's a lot of hedging, and there's also there's a big difference between the governor saying, "If you get me a bill, I'll sign it," and 
I want this bill. I've incorporated it into my budget. I've incorporated it in my plan for this $1.9 billion surplus, which he didn't do. He's put the onus on this sort of odd coalition of hard right conservatives and Democrats who want the grocery tax repeal and are running up against House leadership, which doesn't want the repeal. And at some point, you are running into a budget reality because this is a $250 million price tag for the repeal, if I'm remembering Ron Nate's bill correctly. At some point, even $1.9 billion runs out, especially when you've got lawmakers who aren't really sure that it's really $1.9 billion. And if, if it's really a, a good number, if it's a, a solid number of permanent money as opposed to a lot of one-time money, I mean, it feels like time, money, and procedural windows are quickly running out for folks who want this uh, grocery tax repeal. And I don't think that crunch is any mistake. You know, again, even among the lawmakers who have some of the most ambitious plans for that money in their dream wish list, I don't think any of them want to spend all of the projected $1.9 billion. You have a lot of people who really want to see the state shore up their rainy day funds even more. And it has in anticipation of an inevitable downturn, no matter when that might be. Um, and and you're seeing that in the bill that passed the House this week on increasing the grocery tax credit by twenty dollars too. You know, an acknowledgement that hey, um, we know that food costs have gone up. We know that you want to do something on grocery taxes, but leadership has said. We don't want the repeal of the entire grocery sales tax. This is what you're getting. And that's that's a, a credit that Idahoans aren't going to see for another two years. That doesn't we don't get that until 2024. Right. And so there's already an eye toward that dwindle, dwindling bucket of money. And there's a reason that the governor's priorities were among the things that were passed first. This would be an interesting session if it, just because of the money, just because of the politics, just because of the election year. It's also been, let's face it, it's been an interesting session to, to cover and track because we're in the middle of record case numbers, an Omicron surge that appears to be receding, but was fully raging the, the first couple of weeks of the session. Maybe it's peaking, maybe it's not. Yeah, we touched on it at the, at the, the outset. You know, this sort of this attitude, this mindset, this approach to the the pandemic at the state house has been it's been something to behold. It's it's like a completely different universe, right? I I'm one of the reporters who goes on the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare's weekly call with the media to get updates um, on COVID. And hearing about the stresses that the hospitals are facing, you know, and hearing about crisis standards of care in three of Idaho's seven public health districts, and hearing public health officials just plead with people to please take this seriously, consider getting vaccinated, and then to hear a lot of those same public health officials present to, say, the House Health and Welfare Committee, and you know, have frankly some of the committee members not not impressed at all. Mm-hmm. They, 
they're, they're not paying attention, they don't want to be there, and they're making that very clear with their body language. Um, totally different worlds. No mention of crisis standards of care from the fall um, in the governor's state of the state address, which, again, if he's not on the defensive, if he's doing a victory lap with that state of the state, he's not going to want to mention no. No. What, what bad shape Idaho's hospitals were in. But it's been, um, January was really something for the month of Idaho. Uh, and it was something to see that, that to- two totally different worlds playing out and covering both of them. Right. And I think some of that came through on Wednesday when the House State Affairs Committee took up the latest version of the mask mandate bill, the, the bill that would outlaw mask mandates in the schools, in local governments. And you know, Kerry Hanks, the sponsor of the bill, said, you know, I, I think we're ready to take risks and we're ready to move on. You know, and on the one hand, I, I understand the sentiment of everybody in the state house, everybody in the state who's who's tired of the virus. We're all tired of the virus. I mean, I don't think that's a I don't think that's a debatable point. But what you do in the middle of a you know, a statistically provable surge in cases is it, it's a whole different equation to me. It, it is. And I think you know, the line that we have heard, frankly, since the special session in August 2020 was people aren't dying in the streets like they were during the Spanish flu. Well, sure, because we have ICUs now. We have uh, coroner refrigerated trucks because the morgues were filling up. You know, we we don't have people dying of COVID in the streets because it's 2022. People are dying in ICUs. You know, and when when we have 4,500 Idahoans right. who have died of this, I mean. They may not have died in the streets, but they died somewhere. They died somewhere, and they had families, and they have loved ones who miss them. And, you know, many of them were in their 70s and 80s. Not all of them were. And especially during the Delta surge, we saw a dramatic rise in the number of people in their 30s and 40s, and especially 50s who were dying, otherwise healthy people, right? We, We hear... Reporters who cover this all the time ask, oh, well, how many of them had comorbidities? A lot of these folks were not unhealthy people. And in 50s is not old. No. People people in their 50s should not be dying of a respiratory disease. As somebody, you know, in, as somebody in his 50s, I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> I don't think Kevin's that old. You know, so, so if, if we thought of a foodborne illness, for example, that killed hundreds of people in their 30s and 40s and 50s over the past two years, people would be outraged. People would be incredibly, incredibly alarmed and for good reason. Um, this is this is different because a lot of that suffering is going on in ICUs away from the public's eye. I, I do think that's part of it, that that disassociation is so easy to hang on to because it's for so many people it's abstract mm-hmm. and what strikes me odd about it all and i really i'd love to have somebody explain the mindset that i'm missing here because it feels like we're treating this differently than we're treating 
the flu. We've spent two years saying, oh, it's just the flu, it's just the flu, it's just the flu. But we're not, if people were sick with the flu, if somebody at the state house were sick with the flu, my guess is that they would probably stay home, they'd probably hydrate, they'd probably watch Netflix for a few days, they would do what you do when you're sick. But it feels like with, with COVID-19, and we've, we've, we've seen ample evidence of it over these two years, you almost have to pretend like you don't have anything and you kind of power through, thus potentially infecting other people. It's been a very, I, I don't understand it. And I'm, I'm seriously, literally do not understand it. I, I understand for people who have experienced a mild case of COVID. And statistically, that's going to be the majority of people who get COVID. You know, whether they're vaccinated or not, most people aren't ending up right. in the hospital. Yeah. And so if, if that's you and you're like, man, you know, that wasn't fun, but it was like two years ago when I had this bad cold and it knocked me on my butt. If that That's the lens through which we look at the world. And... And I get that. And it's it's hard to look at those numbers and realize that, okay, statistically speaking, the majority of people are going to be fine. But because so many people have been infected with Omicron, and if, you know, even 1% of them are ending up critically ill and dying, just from a pure number standpoint, that's a lot of people. And it's a lot more than the flu. Mm -hmm. The flu has not killed 374 people in their 50s in the last two years. It's COVID has killed 374 people in their 50s in Idaho alone. You know, 20, 21 people in their 20s, 56 people in their 30s. I mean, those are those are young, young people who should not be dying of respiratory viruses. And so it's I get it. Statistics are hard and numbers are hard. And. I think there is a very legitimate and important public policy discussion to be had about the role of government in transmissible disease mitigation. And that is a conversation that people have been having for the last two years now. That is an important one. But you can have that conversation without denying how dangerous COVID is for a group of people, especially those with compromised immune systems or people who are older or with the Omicron surge babies and toddlers, higher proportions of babies and toddlers were ending up in the hospital and in pediatric ICUs than in previous surges. You know, it's, if you're not directly impacted by that, that's hard to to relate to. Because again, blessedly, most people, it's gonna be like a nasty cold, mm-hmm. right? And And that's a good thing, but we can't forget the people who are impacted by it. And it doesn't take a public policy mandate to be considerate. And I wonder if that that conversation about the public policy role in the middle of a pandemic, it feels like it's too charged right now to have that conversation. It's too politicized. And I wonder if we ever get to the point where this is endemic and it's not as, it becomes a fact of everyday life more like the flu. Will we have that conversation then? Will it be sort of out of sight, out of mind? I, I really, I don't know. I mean, we, we need to have it though. We need to have a really important conversation about, okay, what's the off-ramp for masks in schools? That That's a conversation that people 
with level heads need to have. A conversation that's yeah. happening in schools across the nation and now happening right. in Idaho. You know, it could yeah, happen in Boise next week. The- Boise's going to look at their their mask mandate on Monday. Exactly. It's a conversation exactly. happening yeah. in real time, but it's not happening in that take a step back, look at the big picture kind of uh, context. Right, right, exactly. And I, it's, you know, as, and I've, I've talked about this before, as somebody with a compromised immune system, as somebody with a child who is too young to be vaccinated, who got pretty sick with Omicron and had to go in. Um, it, you know, it's so easy to approach that conversation in an emotionally charged way. How do you separate that? You know, I, I get it, but you people do need to look at the data and they do need to think about the role of government in these things. And also being responsible and considerate. If you do have the flu, you don't want to be going to work and getting your coworkers sick. Um, you know, can we even have that conversation with COVID anymore now that people have already made up their minds and have made them up for a very long time, it yeah. seems. No, no, they have. Well, First off, I hope everything is going well with you and your, your family and that you're going to get on the other side of this. And, and as always, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me and, you know, wander through some topics. And if Governor Little announces, we may want to get back together here on the podcast. But yeah, probably not. not don't, we'll, we'll do some other don't bet on it. I don't know. It seems a little bit risky. Well, we'll just have to see. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you so much, Thanks, Kevin. Mom. It's always nice to be here. Again, that was Melissa Davlin, the host of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. You can catch Idaho Reports every Friday night at 8 p.m. That'll wrap it up for this week. We have a lot of news at our website, idahoednews.org. If you've missed anything, I urge you to check us out. Uh, We have stories that break down a lot of the topics that Melissa and I talked about in our segment this week. I have a piece uh, that I published on Thursday that looks at the jockeying between still unannounced gubernatorial candidate Brad Little and Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan. It breaks down some of the politics that we're seeing unfolding at the Statehouse. That's my Thursday piece, my weekly analysis. Blake Jones and I are at the Statehouse every day following the latest education policy news. We have a a daily roundup of uh, Statehouse developments, so you want to check that out on a daily basis. If you miss a day, you miss a lot. We have a lot more at the website as well. Kyle Fonensteel was first on the story. He was the guy who broke the news that Nampa School Superintendent Paula Kellerer had resigned abruptly, and he's been following the developments ever since. So you can check out the latest at idahoednews.org. Devin Bodkin has a piece looking at school building needs down the road, a new study looking at what's going to be needed to accommodate student growth in the next few years. You'll want to check that story out. Another feature at idahoednews.org is my election notes feature. I've been, seems like I've been tracking this every day and, and updating this file every day, following the latest developments in legislative elections, who's running, who's not running, who's trying to move from the House to the Senate. We're staying on top of that, and I have uh, updates there. That's kind of a rolling file, so you can check out the latest and then scroll down and catch anything you missed. Meanwhile, I would encourage you, if you don't already do so, to follow us on Twitter at IdahoEdNews. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news. You can also follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And we'll be back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe. Have a good week. 